0: Welcome back my friends to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. Have you ever heard anyone say, getting arrested was the best thing that ever happened to me? As crazy as that may sound to normal people, if you've been around AA long enough, you've heard it, usually expressed along with gratitude. I've heard my guest, George J. say it many times over the years. His arrest on federal drug charges at age 19 after seven chaotic years of addiction and alcoholism was truly a blessing and marked the start of a new life based in sobriety and service. Now, nearly 40 years later, George's remarkable story of continuous sobriety in AA is one that demonstrates the gifts that are possible by working the program and practicing its principles on a daily basis. Overcoming many challenges along the way, his years of AA service also inspired a successful career in the recovery field, helping lots of people. Still, his work in Alcoholics Anonymous has remained his top priority. I've witnessed that priority in action over the last thirty-plus years, and George still inspires me and many others with his dedication to AA and his primary purpose of helping other alcoholics achieve sobriety. The next hour and twenty minutes is going to fly by as you listen to AA recovery interviews with my very good friend and AA brother, George J. I'm George. I'm an alcoholic addict. Hi, George. Thanks for being here today. You and I have known each other a really long time, and to kind of prepare people who are listening to this podcast for the first time, who may be hearing somebody's story for the first time, that's you, what advice would you give somebody initially before they listen? If you could tell them, now you're getting ready to listen to this, keep this in mind, what would you say?
1: I would say to look for the similarities and Mm -hmm. and to have an open mind that you are hearing somebody share their basically their heart and soul Mm -hmm. and if you can tap into the things that are similar or things Mm -hmm. that you could maybe grow from or learn from would be the way I would do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable suggestion to people listening for the first time. I know you're coming up on a milestone this coming fall. It's amazing. seems like just last year we were at your 35th AA birthday, but um, you're coming up on... 4 zero. 40, 40 on October. It's October, October 12th. October 12th. God, that's amazing. Yep. It's hard to believe all the years that have passed by. And you and I have known each other a pretty long time now. Yeah. I mean, it seems like for years and years and years, we go to a lot of the same meetings together. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think really facilitates a good, a nice, close relationship. Yep. Your story I've heard before, and it's a great story, and it's, it's very um, enlightening about who you are. But it starts at a relatively early age, and... I wondered if you could kind of walk us through what growing up was like and how that may have contributed or led to your alcoholism. You know,
1: I was the youngest of six children, Mm -hmm. and I was probably
0: five and a half years after
1: the last one, so I may have been a mistake. (laughs) I may have been a a surprise, (laughs) and so and so. In some ways, I felt like I was a part of a big family, but in more ways, I felt like probably in some ways only child really because as the siblings moved on it was basically my brother and I and then when my Mm -hmm. brother left for the Air Force you know I guess I was 12 years old and that's Mm kind of when the drugs and alcohol almost started Uh, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and so for me you know it's not the reason I'm an addict but I think the spark that lit the fire was that my father who I was very very close to Mm -hmm. super close to I just thought he walked on water yeah one Sunday morning after cutting the grass he came inside and said that he wasn't feeling well and I went check on him and he was in his bedroom and he was talking weird and I didn't realize it at the time but he was talking about like his mom like his mama Mm.
0: and
1: instead of my mama and next thing you know I, I went to church it's a small town in Louisiana called Lockport Louisiana Mm-hmm. 2,500 people, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was walking to church, and then while in church, the priest announced that my dad died. Oh, no. And so it was like really, you know, like shocking. Like, you don't even know what to do when you're 12 years old. And luckily, my brother was in like three or four pews behind me and had somebody mm-hmm. tap me on the shoulder to, like, come on, get out. Because I didn't even, I mean, I was like, man, did he just say what he said? You know, mm. God. Mm-hmm. and so he drove me home he wouldn't drive me to church but he drove me home I guess he had a little compassion for me at the moment yeah. and yeah. you know just as that happened you know they say when you have trauma your feelings stop so I think at that point yeah. my feelings stopped. but it opened the door and the way it opened the door was that once he died my mom had never worked before she never even finished high school and so mm-hmm. she was a Cajun woman. And so she ended up getting her GED mm-hmm. and got her first job. She was a sitter at a hospital from 11 to mm-hmm. 7.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: like all good Louisiana people, you, had, you have a uh, bar mm-hmm. full of alcohol that I never really put much thought about it. Mm-hmm. But when she was gone and I would be afraid at night and I had friends over or whatever, we started hitting the bar hitting the, you know, mm. trying different alcohol. And my mom wasn't a drinker. Her dad was an alcoholic. So she had no idea the alcohol was slowly slipping away. Oh. And for me, it was that, like, we all talk about that rush of comfort. And so mm-hmm. I, it was my security blanket living in a big house, you know, when she's gone from 11 to 7. Mm. And so I think it helped, not that my dad dying didn't have influence, but it was more about the freedom mm. To try things that triggered the addiction to get started and then obviously i tried marijuana uh for the first time at mardi gras at age 13 and it was like wow this is even better than alcohol
0: wow so it, it was an accessibility issue for you too i mean the 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 booze was pretty accessible to you at home yeah and then of course at mardi gras my guess is all i've never been to mardi gras all the years i've lived down here but My guess is that it's readily available. Yeah, because you can hide it. You got
1: costumes on or whatever. No one knows what's really what's going on. It's a full-on party.
0: My goodness. So, so was your drinking then? uh, Did. It helped with the loneliness or the aloneness that you were experiencing at the time. Yeah, yeah, and the grief. And the grief, sure. How long did it take you to kind of move past that point in your life? Uh, And did alcohol, was that helpful?
1: Yeah, I think it just continued from that moment of age 12 to when i got sober at 19 it was just a consistent Mm -hmm. part of my life and my first addiction was sports and basketball actually and Mm -hmm. and i broke my leg in eighth grade playing football and i broke it again and so i I couldn't play basketball and Mm -hmm. so i had all these you know things that losses that i was dealing with and Oh, yeah. And then, so the one area I started having a little pride in was that I could drink and do drugs and I could drink and do drugs more than maybe the guy next to me and I could tolerate it. And, yeah. and, you know, it's just, it just, you know, that junkie pride bullshit that you think you're, you know, it's a good thing that you're doing, but it's not like, that's right. I, I tried to lie my way back onto the basketball team in ninth grade. I couldn't get a physical. And so. I basically kept putting the coach off and going to practice, and you know I was so happy. I just it was, it, I'm in my zone, in my comfort mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. I'm playing basketball. It's just like the total way for me to relax and enjoy life. And mm-hmm. and so one day I was at practice, and the coach said, "Hey, I need to talk to you." And what happened is my mom happened to go to school that day for some trouble I was having with a teacher. And the coach said, "Your son's doing so well," and she's like, "What?" She said, "He's not even supposed to be playing basketball." Oh, no. And so that day when I showed up for practice, all excited, he says, I got to talk to you. And so he tells me, says, George, I know that you can't ever get a physical and you're not supposed to play basketball. And I I would get in a lot of trouble if I let you play without a physical. And so would you like to Mm -hmm. be the team manager? And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're a pseudo jock, it's an insult to be asked to be the manager. So. I just yeah. I just remember that you know the junkie pride kind of took over because we would go to the games late, mm-hmm. smelling like drugs, yeah, basically cheering against our team. Just you know acting uh-huh. out. And in hindsight, it was all just my pain yeah. that I didn't know how to express. I couldn't play ball. My dad died. I mean, all this stuff that's going on that you know that is tough, yeah. but it's deal. You know, it's manageable. It, but as an yeah. addict and alcoholic, way I managed it was with drugs and alcohol.
0: And the problem is, I don't know of any high schools anywhere that give out varsity letters for drinking and drug <laughs> use. <do> you? No. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> I can imagine that kind of teenage angst that you had, yeah. driven by having to be an assistant uh, manager on a team mm-hmm. and having to watch them play the sport that you desperately that you desperately wanted to be in. That must have been really tough. Yeah. So
1: I said, no way. So I just you, you, I went the opposite way instead of trying to be involved, maybe learning about coaching or doing other things. I was like, no, I don't, I don't want anything to do with it except you know, party and make a fool of myself.
0: Knowing what you know now, all these years later, if there was a way for the George of today to go back and talk to that George that had just experienced that, what would the George of today tell him that might make a difference in his life?
1: He, w- he would have said, one, when his dad died, that, hey, that happens, You can talk about it. You don't have to just cry during the funeral and then shut it down, that you can release it and continue to release it. And you can talk Mm -hmm. about the good things about your dad. That would have been Mm. one, how to process that grief and to know the stages of it. And then secondly, when I broke my leg, I could have done what the doctor said, which I was trying to do. But Mm -hmm. what happened, Howard, was that uh, the athletes would do weights three days a week and we'd do like flag football two days a week.
0: Sure. And, and
1: I was walking around the track and this coach that had, you know, he probably didn't mean harm, but he said, Hey, why don't you come play flag football with us? And so I was playing flag football and I went up for a pass and hit somebody hard in the leg and broke it again. Mm-hmm. So basically, it took me out of eighth grade and ninth grade basketball. Oh. Whereas if I would have said, hey, you broke your leg, heal it, get your physical, you'd have been ready for ninth grade basketball. And so the timing of it and and just the lack of wisdom, like if I I could have told myself then to say, hey, tell coach that, you know, I love to play flag football, but it's not the right time. Mm. I, I think I would have had a chance to at least play a sport that I loved.
0: So you, you, there was a certain amount of, I guess, grieving that you might have had to go through over the loss of that dream of playing basketball and football, for that matter, huh? Yep, yeah, yeah. And, and wow. what happened,
1: too, is back then, because it was the femur, which is the yeah. hardest to heal, I was in the hospital twice for six weeks in traction. Oh, my gosh. So not, not only you're wow. dealing with all this, then you're pinned down to a bed. And, uh-huh. and having to deal with all that's going on in your head for those six weeks locked at a
0: hospital. Wow, so you so you went from there to your new hobby of uh, <laughs> alcohol and drug use yeah. uh, with with your with your friends. Did you run with a certain crowd that was doing that, or did you do that on your own?
1: Uh, it all kind of started to transform. Like everybody seemed like they were a lot of the people I was with started to kind of transform into that lifestyle. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's just the era. It was like the late 70s that it seemed like it was so prevalent. I'm sure, you know, then you get clouded. So you only see the people that you think party and the ones that don't, you think they're, you know, losers. Mm -hmm. And so it just seemed like the momentum, even though it's what I was going through, it seemed like the whole group around us was going through some of the same things. So a lot of my friends that were, you know, I knew before drugs and alcohol became drug and alcohol users. And then I did obviously start to gravitate to the ones that partied the hardest mm-hmm. and, you know, left the ones that didn't party that much or had other interests.
0: So you took you took a certain amount of pride in your ability to party yep. as hard or harder than the next guy?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it was partly, obviously, the addiction kicked in, but partly, too, that it was another way not to face the losses.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that must have been tough. Yeah. So when did you face your first consequences from... Drinking and drug use and what did that look like? You
1: know, it wasn't a lot in the beginning because like when we'd have car wrecks It was like fun, Uh you know, like you push the car (laughs) to the ditch (laughs) It was not it wasn't a big problem and you know, obviously my grades were not great, but it wasn't you know Like I was still passing Right. Um, I think the first drug and alcohol consequence would have been um I guess the worst car wrecks car accident when I was a either junior or senior in high school, we were in, mm-hmm. um, it was called the Picon Festival. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. in Louisiana, yeah. we have festivals, f- names for, for everything, everything. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's turtle soup in <laughs> English, but so, right. so we had went to the festival. And the sad part about my life is that the kid who was the worst driver, his family was the wealthiest. So they always had, we always had access to his mom's car. And so he was driving and we had went to the festival and we, I think, I don't think I took quaaludes, but they split a quaalude and we were drinking all day. And our, my mm-hmm. best friend was, had to work that day. So we were actually, we going to pick him up, which would have been mm-hmm. great if we'd have got there. But my buddy, my buddy passed the house. And so oh, we no. turned on the street, we all used the bathroom on the side of the street. And then we're like less than a mile away from my buddy and the road curved. And we went straight and the car flipped a few times and in the ditch and I got trapped in the back and so I messed up three vertebrates. Oh no. And had, you know, years of surgeries. I've had like five or six back surgeries since then. I've still got two rods in my back. Oh man. That were placed early in my life to try to help support the vertebrates that were messed up.
0: Wow. Wow. So when that happened, uh, I guess there weren't seat, nobody was wearing a seatbelt at the time, or you
1: know, I don't know. It's a good question. If I had seat belts on or not, because I just remember it feeling smelling gas on me and being halfway out the window. And what's even more ironic, a lot of my life was spent working on a Montrose, the Street Montrose.
0: Sure, uh-huh. and
1: the music that was playing at the time was Rock Candy by a band named Montrose. <laughs> 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 it's funny the things you remember.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is, that is. So the first major consequence was an injury, yes. and did you guys get into trouble for that, or or was the injury trouble enough?
1: No, I think back then a lot of times, the, I don't even know if the driver got DWI, but it, huh. for me, because I, I was a passenger, I didn't have any legal Problems, but obviously it was just Uh the problems of the physical.
0: Wow! So there you are back in the hospital again. Yeah. How long did you spend in the hospital that time? I think it was a couple, two or three
1: weeks. They actually had to move me to the one in New Orleans. And and what's funny about it, Howard, is that in the first two episodes of the hospital, a lot of cards, letters, you know, Mm -hmm. pre-addiction, and then Mm -hmm. middle of addiction, very few cards, very few letters you know, people mm. that use, they're like cockroaches when the lights come on. I mean, they take off. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so they may have thought we were friends, but they're not going to go out in the, you know, in the daylight to let people see that they're going to visit their friend or send a card or, you know, things like that. So it was like a whole series of, you know, less social interactions.
0: So that must've made you feel kind of alone at the time, huh? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it goes back to the loneliness and then you go back to obviously to the bottle and, you know, I had one surgery and then another surgery. And then the third surgery, they almost had to redo everything. Oh, no. And and that doctor was really good. He was a he was an amazing doctor. And he said, you uh-huh. have to stay home for, I forgot how long. And I had to wear this huge brace, like from my neck to my waist. Uh, I forgot how long I had to stay home. But I just said to my mind, I said, I think I have a problem. I said, I think I'm not going to drink or do drugs. Hmm. And I really believe I was a dry drunk because I was really irritable, discontented, Mm -hmm. snappy of just Mm -hmm. my mom and I. I think I I drank, you know, a few long neck Dixie beers just to kind of take the edge off. But in my mind, I was being trying to be sober. Uh And then when I got out and was able to go around my friends when they were trying to pass the joint, I was like, no, I'm going to. I'm staying yeah. sober, and that didn't mm-hmm. last long because I didn't have the tools. I just, I don't know how long I even stayed without drugs, but mm-hmm. eventually I, I went right back, and as we both know, the progressiveness gets worse, and yeah. so even though I might have been off the grid for a couple months, I was still yeah. off to the races.
0: All of this happened, the surgeries, everything else, before you were how old?
1: I was 17, I think, when the act, of surgery started,
0: Seventeen. Okay, so you had a couple of years before you actually got sober. What were the last couple of years like for you, and and where was your bottom that finally boosted you into the program?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Those years were like such a fog because you're so far into it. You know, it was just Mm. concerts and partying and whatever you know, you could do to survive and get by. And mm-hmm. I think I was number 265 out of 280 students when I graduated. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't Another a, distinction. Yeah, yeah, it was a great <laughs> distinction. But I graduated, I got into college and I tried to, you know, made attempts at college. And, mm-hmm. you know, the bottom was weird. It's, you know, that's where I really love the legal system when they, you know, do their job, because I was dealing cocaine at this point to support, to support myself. And I had a friend who introduced me to another friend that said, Hey, he wants to buy cocaine. And so I sold him some cocaine and then he wanted to buy larger quantities, I mean, in the ounces. So it was like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm a little like Miami Vice kind of guy. Sure. And uh, lo and behold, that guy was a federal narcotic agent. And <sighs> um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, it was, the, it was sad because I was at home when they came with the warrant and my mom was going to work at like six thirty in the morning she had progressed up to a dental assistant and the police show up to you know arrest me mm-hmm. and i wouldn't even dare to face the consequences but wow uh, so i get arrested a distribution mm-hmm. of cocaine 18 years old was like one month before my 19th birthday and um mm-hmm. the best thing ever happened was that the lawyer my lawyer his mm-hmm. wife worked at this place called Baton Rouge Chemical Dependency Unit when he was in law school. Sure, And he came and said, look, I talked to everybody. You're, you know, you're arrested. You're, they, they got you cold, you know. And the best thing we can do is get you in a rehab center mm-hmm. to help lo- lessen your consequences. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, give me a week. And so that whole week, I really believe I was suicidal. I never knew that until I was a long. long time sober because... I was just so afraid not knowing what was going to happen that I partied in such a way that it, it didn't matter. Like I had no throttle. It was just like full right. on, you know, mm-hmm. no matter what happened, I would play chicken with myself in the car at night. I mm-hmm. mean, just, you know, just crazy things because of fear. Yeah, Drugs and alcohol cover the fear. But when you when there's serious fear, it's even that it has a hard time covering it. Yeah. And so I was there, you know, ready for rehab. But I was just you know, so afraid.
0: So you had a death wish in in the days or weeks preceding actually going into treatment. Yeah. What was the biggest fear at that point? Was it going into treatment or was it the whole situation of getting caught, having a big run in with the federal law enforcement? I think it was a little bit of everything. I think it's
1: uh-huh. somewhere in my mind. I felt like God was out to get me, that I felt like I wasn't going to live past 21, mm. that I could be going to prison, that I, you know, know what rehab's all about. I mean, it's just I think it was just, you know, again, because I started drinking and drugging at 12 emotionally, I was a 12 year old in an adult body trying to figure this out and not a lot of, you know, support. My mom was amazing, but she was, you know, a Mm -hmm. fairly high school, you know, GED person that, you know, was trying to do the best she could. And I'm sure I, I gave her a nervous breakdown dealing with all this stuff.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Now you mentioned God just a second ago. And so where was God in your life up to this time? And how did you feel about your higher power?
1: You know, I, I think that when my dad died and the priest announced it, it just it, mm-hmm. it closed all doors to God. I mean, I knew God was there. Mm-hmm. I, I was like a 800. God, a hey, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do better. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I thought he had his mark out for me that I, you know, everything that was happening negatively was. You know, I did something wrong in my life and that I didn't have a lot of hope. And so I didn't see, I, I knew there was a God, but I didn't see it as like I do now, obviously, it's more hopeful and loving. I didn't see it that way.
0: Yeah. Did your religious beliefs at that point kind of uh, support the notion that you were a lost cause or that uh, you were being punished or any of that?
1: I don't know if it did. I just didn't feel it. You know what I mean? It was like a, yeah, a Catholic, you know, small town mm-hmm. I even had a St. Jude medal, saint of lost causes, that I was wearing. Right, and and uh, you know, just the life I thought I was dealt. You know, I didn't realize there's another option that there were other ways, and getting arrested was the best thing that could ever happen to me.
0: So that would you consider that to be your your bottom? Definitely. So you went into uh, you went into rehab. Now back then there weren't a, there weren't a whole lot of choices for rehab, were there?
1: Yeah, you know, but it's weird. It's Louisiana at the time had a lot of Minnesota influence. Treatment started in Minnesota, and uh-huh. somehow they had some Minnesota people that came to Louisiana. And at, really, at the time, Baton Rouge was an amazing place. In fact, when I was in rehab, they had uh-huh. uh, I was nineteen, but they put me on the adolescent unit, you know, which was smart. And they had probably forty kids at the time, Howard, and about thirty of them were from all other parts of the country. They weren't even Louisiana people. They were. They had that good of a reputation.
0: So you went into rehab. How long were you
1: there? I was there six weeks, and then six months in a halfway house and then six weeks in jail. So it was like the 666 plan.
0: <laughs> right, so you still had jail to do, even even given that, which is actually not a bad sentence overall, oh, uh, yeah. especially if it changed your life. Do you think you could have, if, they, if the judge had said to you, uh, George, uh, we want you to go to AA for six months, and then do whatever prison time or whatever you had to do, do you think that AA at that particular time time in your life would have been as effective as, uh, the actual treatment program that you went into? For me, probably not
1: And It's more of a geographic because in Lockport, which was near Thibodeau, there was not a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous and there was not a lot of young people. Now, if really? I, if I'd have been in Houston, Texas, it probably would have had a chance. Yeah. yeah. L- Louisiana, I think I had no chance. I had to be, I had to be in treatment. I had to be six months in a sober living to learn how to have fun in sobriety, I had to do a little jail time to get more gratitude. I mean, I ha- I, yeah. I think all those things were meant for me. Like it met, it was part of my destiny to, to accept recovery.
0: Seems like that whole you know six months or uh, six weeks in treatment, six months in halfway, and then six months in jail. Six weeks in seems jail. bad. Yeah, it seems bass backwards to me because you'd think that do jail first because you've got all the negative stuff going on there, and then go into treatment, then go to halfway. What was your pre- what was your jail time like? Did, did you feel like it was starting to undo what had been done for you in the previous six months and six weeks?
1: No, it's it's it was not at all. It it, it was like a Mayberry RFD jail. I mean, it's <laughs> it was two jail cells, and it was actually, you and
0: Otis, huh? Yeah, me, me, me and
1: about twelve other Otises. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it was two cells. It was work release. I could go to work during the week. It'd come back. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was. It was enough for gratitude, and it was not mm-hmm. bad enough where it was like brought me back. Because like even when I was arrested, it was like sixteen of us through a whole raid. Like everybody was raided, and a lot of the oh, guys wow. were in jail when i got there about to get out for their mm-hmm. a lot of them got year sentences and they got out in six months so by the time i rolled around they were getting out and they were like ah you went and do all that rehab and all that stuff we're about to get out but i did feel like i had enough of the sobriety to to make a difference you know what i mean like i i felt yeah. enough strength to be able to go through it and do the process and there were a lot of people outside in that met me through my recovery, including the people that ran the sober living that were contacting the judge and, and pushing for me to get released. And that's actually why I got released in six weeks instead of six months.
0: Wow. That's great. So you spent only six weeks in, in jail. Yeah, six weeks. Oh, okay. Yes. So the, 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 sentence was six months, but you, good yeah. behavior, I guess, got you out. Yeah, but... it
1: was a year. I think it was, it might've been a two year or a one year sentence, but good behavior. You could have got out six months. I got out in six
0: weeks. So did you do parole for a period of time after that? Yeah, I was on
1: probation, and then I actually, and yeah, and then I actually got a first offenders, first something uh, pardon. I actually, got a pardon from the governor of Louisiana.
0: Wow, how cool is that? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, so you, so from there, did you go back to Lockport? No, I, by
1: that time the the recovery program was in Thibodeau, Louisiana, and I stayed yeah. in Thibodeau. and then I ended up working as a tech and the sober living that I uh, went through when
0: I had a couple years sober. Now, did they bring AA in or were there AA meetings as part of the transition back into everyday life? How did that work? In
1: my rehab center, it was full on AA, it was awesome. I mean, I had to know the AA steps just to go to our room to use the restroom. I mean, you have to memorize Mm -hmm. the steps. I mean, they brought people in for meetings. Uh, I don't think they allowed us to go out to meetings. And then in in Mm -hmm. the sober living, we were involved in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and going, to, going to meetings and mm. had sponsors and all that stuff. It was really good.
0: Wow, that's re- that's really, I guess, important when you're just getting out. Yeah. Once you were out, you continued to work in the treatment center? I, I was out for a while working where I was working before
1: at uh, my cousin's international truck dealership. And then... Uh-huh. They hired me as the first tech for this sober living because in, when it, I was one of the first clients. I was in the first 10 clients. Oh, wow. And basically the counselors worked 24-7. Uh-huh. And I was the first tech they ever hired, which was pretty cool because I was 10 p.m. at night and 8 a.m. in the morning. So when the guys went to sleep upstairs, I would sleep on the sofa bed. And then when they'd wake up, I would wake up. And then I was there like every. Three out of every four weekends, I was there all weekend, so it's kind of like that was my job. I was making like two dollars and something an hour. <laughs> wow, <laughs> <laughs> I was getting exploited. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, that, that, that's uh, cheap labor, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: they got in trouble later, and everybody got paid back, but I was gone too long to get my minimum wage. <laughs>
0: yeah, so you're 19 years old when all this is going yeah. on. You're not even uh, you're not even legal at that point. I, or what's the drinking age in uh, Louisiana? Eighteen. I think it was
1: eight. 18, and then it changed to 21, I think. Once.
0: Now, during this time, did you have any contact with your old friends at all, or did they just kind of drop off after that?
1: You know, a couple times. It's funny, a couple times I went back and tried to experience it. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time being in a car with some of my friends, and they were lighting up the joints, and I'm like, no, I'm, you know, changed. And, and it's funny, because I remember the tone of the conversation of you know we're not sure we can do what you're doing and those kind of things mm. and, and one of the mm-hmm. guys in that car died like maybe three or four months later drunken driving oh. or accident and so i just, I just it, it's just you know it was part of that
0: disease we lost a lot of people in my growing up times uh-huh yeah i guess that must have been uh tough to have to see people continuing on with that you knew you had to continue to do, staying sober and staying clean. Yeah,
1: that's what, yeah, and it's so good about the sober living because learning how to have fun and sobriety and being around other people my age mm-hmm. made such an impact. I mean, like my roommate for many, many years was a guy that I met in treatment. We went to the same sober living. Mm-hmm. We're still friends today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, those relationships date 1982, 81. You know, I mean, they're, they're long-term relationships and that's what happens in sobriety i think you you live longer obviously sure of course yeah you're not doing crazy stuff but then right. you have good good you know you make good connections and we we learned about fun and sobriety that was the best thing i could ever do we played softball we we had a uh, one of the counselors got married i always tell this story but he got married and and they had a big camcorder uh-huh. recorded so all the guys in the house we were called brothers once I got the camcorder, I didn't want to let it go. It was like <laughs> my crutch. And during the reception, uh-huh. the band was playing music, and they had all of us go up to sing Proud Mary. <laughs> and I can't sing for anything, but once I got up there to sing, I saw that everybody was into their own world having yeah. fun, and it didn't matter. And thats it was like a turning point for me to like, I didn't need a camcorder, I could have fun. And not care as long as I'm not hurting anybody, and that's what they were preaching to us. Like you could have fun,
0: wow. just don't
1: hurt anybody. And so it was yeah. like a breakthrough in that moment.
0: What a stark contrast to all those years that you felt alone. Yes, absolutely. Pretty amazing. Did you get your sponsor while you were at uh, in treatment or at the half, at the halfway house? At,
1: yeah, I was. I got a great sponsor that you know was with me the whole way. And mm-hmm. the day the day I was leaving the uh, the sober living. Uh, this guy pulls up and he's kind of got long hair and a little chevette. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, I'm walking out and he's walking in and I'm like, Hey, you're a new guy. He said, No, I'm coming to work here. <laughs> and, uh, he ends up working there and he is, ends up being my sponsor till I, I still kind of consider him my sponsor after all these years, but uh-huh. he invited me to dinner when I got out of jail and, into a meeting and uh-huh. you know made an effort and so his name is Ev and he he's been a great friend they did a roast for me one time and they he came in and spoke and he's just been a great guy and uh, so you know you never know how things work out
0: I think I was at that roast
1: Yeah yeah he was he was on the speakers
0: So you're working at the treatment center fast forward a couple years couple three maybe 5 years uh what was going to AA like for you in the early days? Uh, I'm talking about outside meetings, especially since yeah. you were so young. Were there yeah. a lot of other young people? Or what were those meetings like for you?
1: You know, I was fortunate because I stayed in uh, Louisiana and then I came to Houston for training right. to be a drug and alcohol counselor. Yeah. And so I really, really got involved or got, got a taste of having fun and sobriety here too, because there was a lot of young people in recovery. Hmm. I was able to go to a couple of these things called IKIPAZ, these Mm -hmm. Young People's International Conference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of them in Miami and one of them in Boston. We played sober softball. I mean, I just really felt like that first five or six years, whatever it was, I I mean, probably my whole young life was really involved with sober people and it was a great experience.
0: Hmm. So during a really pivotal developmental part of your life, you were around sober people. And the thing that you said about having fun, uh, I've always felt like we go to AA to get sober, but I think we stay for the fellowship. Yep. You know, we are not a glum lot. We absolutely insist on having fun. Yep. Everything you've said about the positive experiences you had in AA seemed tied to that very thing. Is that a pretty accurate statement?
1: Absolutely. It was so critical for me. If I would not have had fun, I would have not stayed sober. Yeah. I mean, the meetings are great, but you're, I can have an amnesia the moment I leave the meeting but when you're having fun and you're having quality of life and you can trust your friends and you know and the people you're around it just is a good feeling and I, I just you know I wanted to do better I wanted to stay sober I didn't want to uh, dabble with a, a different lifestyle
0: hmm. Hmm. did that make the transition to coming to Houston easier for you that kind of mindset about did you know when you came what you were going to do once you got here?
1: No, it's weird. I came I came for training, and then I went back to Louisiana. Uh-huh. And then they recruited me back in 1987, and I never left. I was only supposed to come here a short time. Mm. And I know I love Louisiana, but Houston— has to me some of the best recovery and yeah. options to be sober and doing anything you want to do. Like I love sports, so sure we we created the Sober Recreation Committee for softball, and, yeah, and we did golf tournaments. And you know, I ended up finding guys in recovery that played basketball. And we created basketball teams and created leagues that we're in, and uh-huh. it was a good piece for me to to be able to learn that stuff and mm-hmm. and to stay sober uh, with those guys. Mm.
0: Was that message that you were bringing into well-established meetings of older guys, how was that message accepted by the groups where there were older people that wouldn't necessarily want to do those things? Did Did you get a sense of how they felt about that? You know, you know,
1: I felt like I've been blessed by finding some of the right meetings. Mm-hmm. And even when I was younger, I think the older people, a lot of them, you know, saw us as a novelty because, you know, I was, there wasn't as many young people as there is today. So, mm-hmm to them, it was like a novelty. Like, you know, some of them probably had like a uh, one eye open, like, are these guys going to are serious about recovery? And, mm-hmm. and some of them are like, man, really embracing us and like, so good. I wish I could have got sober at your age and, mm-hmm. you know, really happy for you. And so the thing about AA and the steps is that it, it's blind to age. Yeah. It's more about the quality of your sobriety and who, who you connect with.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying this show, I invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who received no compensation for this vital service work. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and search for Big Book Podcasts. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. Or you can visit BigBookPodcast.com and listen there and share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. And we're back. You know, I've been doing this big book podcast where I I read the first and second editions of the big book. Going back over those stories, it seems like 80% of the people there are ancient. There's many more stories in the third edition and in the fourth edition where you feel like these people are considerably younger. Even Bill Wilson himself, although we know how old he was at the time, just because of the history of AA, everybody seems that much older. Yep. And uh, w- whenever it was I came in, I used to identify myself. I'd say, my name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic and uh addict. Yep. The andas, uh, some of the meetings I went to, they didn't like that a whole lot. Right. They, didn't, they felt like if you're an alcoholic, you're welcome. But if you're an anda, then maybe you need to find something else. Did you encounter much of that?
1: I saw a little bit of it. It's amazing how it's mellowed out mm-hmm. like it's, it seemed like it was like 10 years ago that the people were on a big kick about it mm-hmm. and and trying to isolate people that did drugs as well mm-hmm. and i think it just became more mainstream that and like for me drugs and alcohol i think get you in recovery sooner yeah because it's so erratic uh-huh. if you're just a drinker typically you don't get help to your late 30s early 40s yeah but if you do drugs and alcohol it'll wipe your ass out fast so like for me to get in at 19 is because I was doing both. If I was just drinking, I don't know if I would have came to recovery as early as I did. So I think as more and more people started getting sobers earlier, uh-huh. I think the meetings transformed themselves where the people that were just alcoholic were like, okay, man, we're, all, we're outnumbered <laughs> because most of the people uh-huh. here yeah. are on drugs and alcohol. And as long as you, you know, didn't really flaunt that, oh, I'm just a drug addict and I'm here. I think people left you alone. And And I think some of the old timers learned some lessons about, you know, trying to not uh, welcome people that have drugs and alcohol
0: problems. Yeah. And especially trying to reframe it Uh, whenever we talk about addiction and alcoholism it's so much easier to just say, yeah, I'm, I'm an addict. I'm addicted to alcohol. Yeah. How effective do you think that some of the other 12-step programs are? Obviously, AA has been around a long time, but those people who uh, go to AA, but they don't feel like that's their their main addiction, so they go to NA or they go to CA. What's your take on those 12-step programs?
1: I think it just
0: depends on the quality of the
1: groups. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I, I know there have been some subgroups that you know, we're a little wavy on their, their recoveries. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I've heard of groups like NA groups that they all, like in Georgia somewhere, I think I heard about early on that they all dress up and it's like a big deal and the Mm -hmm. meetings are strong and Mm -hmm. they, you know, they have quality sobriety. I just think for me, it's kind of all universal in a Mm -hmm. sense, because it's addiction and I'm, you know, dealing with, but I think that, like you said, some people are more comfortable in those meetings. I just think that AA has been so much more well-established mm-hmm. and, you know, it's a program of attraction. So if you're at a meeting that's kind of weak, it's a CA meeting or a NA meeting or whatever, and, and you really want sobriety, you kind of kind of migrate. Yeah. To the meetings of higher quality. So, in fact, I don't even hear as many CA meetings as they used to be.
0: Yeah, you don't hear about that. NA you hear, you still hear about, and some of the other A's. Yeah. So, I think they're kind of merging. Maybe
1: they're going to strength The stronger programs are surviving.
0: Yeah, and it's been my experience when I went to, I think, Codependence Anonymous at first, uh, years and years ago, that the best meetings of CODA were always the ones that had the most AA people in them. Because mm-hmm. it, these are people who know what a, a meeting supposed to look like and sound like and how it's structured and how it's supposed to be run makes a big difference. I, I wanted to back up for just a second to ask you about when you got sober and in the years since you've been sober, family members of yours that, that, you, that have gotten sober and whether or not your mother was involved in Al-Anon and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, my mom did get involved in Al Anon in my little town. And once I got further along, mm-hmm. I think all the moms said, All right, we can dis- <laughs> disband the, the meeting. They're, they're good done. now. <laughs>
0: job, job done. Job
1: done. <laughs> job done. Which is unfortunate because I, I felt like I had my best relationship with her when she was going to Al Anon. Yeah. Yeah. And now, poor thing, she's in a nursing home, oh. 94 years old, and, mm-hmm. and has a little bit of dementia. Mm. But, uh, and then uh, my siblings of the six, I'm the only addict that i know of really i know uh several have married alcoholics Mm -hmm. but they're not addicted and then Mm -hmm. my grandfather on my mom's side was alcoholic and a lot of his kids were alcoholics Mm -hmm. and then some of my cousins were all alcoholics some of them are dead because they Mm -hmm. haven't gotten sober Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so i i don't know i'm i'm unique in the sense of my family that i'm one of the few that are sober and you know, who knows if they others have needs for problems or have problems.
0: Yeah. In my family, I'm the only one in active AA recovery, though the mental illness in the family, both the clinical depression and some of the other issues, have been largely untreated by at least two of my three siblings. And mm. it's unfortunate because knowing what we know, it's almost like you know the combination to the safe that somebody's frantically trying to get into and they don't want to hear it. Yeah. That's how it's been in my family. Yeah. Now, um, I want to ask you about the spiritual aspect of your program when you first got in. Did you embrace the, the spiritual aspect of AA when you first got here, or did it take you a while to build that relationship?
1: It, it, it definitely was a transitional plan. I mean, mm-hmm. it was definitely a process. And it started out where the you know the higher power was a tree. Yeah, it, w- it was a people. It was
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was the chair. It was yeah. a lot of different things. And good, uh, the best one I used to like back then was G O D. Good orderly direction.
0: Yeah, that's a good one.
1: In my rehab center, it was really good because some I was doing a process, and I'm not sure what the process was about me getting the anger out, but. Mm-hmm. The counselor was saying, all right, what are you angry at? And I was naming all these things, and I said God in in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. And he's like, back up. And I said the name before God, and I said the name after God. I don't even remember what I said those mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, 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 the other one. And I finally <laughs> got to God. And he said, you know, I was like, I think I felt afraid to say I was angry at God. And he, he was really good. His name was Dan. Mm-hmm. Dan said, listen. If anybody can Mm -hmm. handle your anger, it's God. Mm -hmm. And God wants you to be honest. And if you're honest and you understand that it's not disrespectful to be angry, if you do it in a respectful way. Mm -hmm. And so I did some actual anger work. I mean, I remember, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was a bataka or what, or yelling, but they got a lot of my anger out. And I don't don't think I'm an angry person, but man, I had a lot of anger built up. Mm -hmm. And he helped me to release the valve. And then the other thing that was really good... That was so powerful. There's a different counselor named Bill. And it's funny how I remember these names 40 years ago, but mm-hmm. Bill had me write a list of what I thought God was. Mm-hmm. And then on the opposite side of the page, what I wanted God to be. Right. And he took the paper and tore it. And the one that I, I thought it was, he lit it on a f- match and threw it in the garbage. <laughs> And he gave me back the good one. He said, "Hey, this is your God." Wow! And it, and it was like, is that simple? <laughs> He's like, "Yes, it's your That's... it's your relationship." What do you you want a bad one? You want a dysfunctional one? Or you want a good one? And and so the good one was has been good for by me.
0: <laughs> well, it's amazing that that demonstrates. I mean, crystal clear the notion of your own concept of God. Yes. I mean, there you were able to draw up the God that you wanted versus whatever you thought God was to that point, Yeah, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful demonstration. That's something I think more people need to know about when they're struggling with sponsees that are having difficulty with the spiritual end of the program.
1: Yeah, wow. as, as you understand it. And so he gave me a whole new understanding of what I, he wanted my God to be. I wanted my God to be like, and, mm-hmm. and even, you know, in my sobriety, there've been times I've tried to sabotage myself because I, I was getting like so many good things happening. It's like, man, this can't be true. Yeah. And, and I had to realize that, man, I did not need to sabotage myself. I just had to roll with it. And God yeah. wanted these blessings for me and to just to be grateful for the blessings as they came. You know, don't don't screw them up because you don't think you deserve them. Yeah. He must think you deserve them and, and he wants you to use them in good ways. So, yeah, that's why my gratitude comes in.
0: Yeah. And for, for me, it was always the notion that, you know, when was the shoe going to drop? Yeah. Good things happening. Good things happening. When's the shoe going to drop? And then one day it came to me and I processed it some through my sponsor, the idea that maybe there isn't another shoe. Yeah. Or if there is, it's not going to drop anytime soon. And as long as you continue to do what you do, uh, that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Let, let me ask you something. So you're you're sober at 19. You're going into the years and you're In your 20s and let's say even into your early 30s when most people are still out there, most of the people you and I know today are still out there drinking and doing and getting ready for entree into AA at some future point. What were those years like for you? And and can you think of some times during that period where your sobriety was challenged or uh, you might have thought, well... Maybe I don't need AA as much as I once did. What what did that look like?
1: You know, the biggest struggles in my recovery have always uh, was about is an area where I'm not focused on recovery. Like every time I drifted away from it is where the problems come in. Mm -hmm, So there was a period of time I lived in New Orleans before I moved to Houston in 87. And I got into gambling with uh, like I think it was basketball and football Mm -hmm, betting mm -hmm. Yeah. And and it was like, man, I was way out there. It was like, you know, I even went to some GA meetings and and it brought it back and I got focused again. And I I don't think I'm a gambler, but it got me to that compulsion. Like when I am not focused on my recovery, any compulsion could pop up. There was there was a period of time where sex was really prevalent.
0: Uh
1: huh. It's funny. We used to have softball teams and so this guy named Grant called me one day, he said, Listen, we I was a good pitcher he said we want you on this softball team he said but you have to go to SLA <laughs> cuz <'Cause> we're <laughs> we're all in, we're all in SLA and I'm like okay well I'll try it <laughs> and so I went to SLA for a while and it was helpful because I was probably you know sober and a little crazy in the sex area. Mm-hmm. And so it it's like if you're for me and everybody's different, believe me. I don't want to mm-hmm. take anybody's program, but sure yeah. for me, if I'm not spiritually fit in my AA recovery, mm-hmm. I am prone to go any which way that's out there that will get me to distract from my relationship with God, helping others. So if it's gambling, sex, food, whatever it is, I can fall for those things. So I had those periods of time where I was not fully engaged in my recovery, and those are some of the problems that I had.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of times people say, well, if you're having problems with that, just redouble your AA program. Were there times where you felt, well, maybe if I just go back to AA harder and and more frequently, that these other problems with gambling or sex or whatever else would mitigate or did you recognize immediately that you needed something different than AA for those particular things? I think,
1: I think it was a combination of both. I think uh-huh. I had to explore GA and learn more about it. I think I had to mm-hmm. explore SLA and learn more about it. I could have uh, overcome those obstacles going right back into A and really got 90 meetings in 90 days and get back mm-hmm. in the steps. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I could have, but I think yeah. the ability to Um, you know, get to learn more in those areas and how it impacts me and what the balance needed to be in my recovery in those areas, because obviously you're always around it. Mm -hmm. I think it was important for me to explore it. Mm -hmm. And and if it was a stronger problem, I I might still be in SLA or still be in GA. But I think learning about it and then redoubling down and focusing on my AA recovery allowed those things not to be an issue. I mean, I don't have those issues at the moment.
0: It's interesting when you come across, pe- or whenever it is I come across people who identify some other addiction in addition to their alcoholism and come to me and say, I think my real addiction is over here, when they have firmly established that, the, that they were alcoholics, yeah. and they want to move away from AA to spend more time in those programs to the exclusion of what they still need yeah. from the AA program. You, yeah. Have you noticed that over the years?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough situation because... You know, they don't always realize it I mean not to say those programs are easier or different, but to me, alcohol and drugs will you know, I'll I'll die a lot quicker going out in alcohol and drugs and doing mm-hmm. other stuff and mm-hmm. and it scares me when they get that way and it scares me when people get a little bit of sobriety and they quit working their recovery and they you know then they start to have serious problems and you know they come back and they've had divorces and different things so mm-hmm. i think it's mm-hmm. the best thing i could ever recommend to anybody is just the consistency of the balance of aa even if you have a, other issues to to keep that balance between all the recovery programs, if that's what you need.
0: Sure. Well, turning back to your 20s and 30s now, because we're, we're still talking about the first, say, 10, 20, maybe even 25 years of your sobriety, there's a lot of time to talk about here. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, that's a hell of a long time. <laughs> so, almost, almost, yeah. almost 40 years. Can you think of some milestones for you in your sobriety, either some of the gifts or some of the great challenges that occurred during those couple of decades?
1: Yeah, no, it's been great. A simple one that I thought about earlier when I didn't think I I lived past 20 the first couple years in sobriety i was like really scared that i would die sober right away you know and so oh, one day i was in an a meeting and i saw my lifeline and on you know, my hand i'm like oh i think i'm gonna live
0: <laughs>
1: a <palm> reading <laughs> yeah, so that, there, huh? so that yeah, palm that it. palm reading helped and then you know just the amazing things of uh having kids sober you know mm-hmm. seeing them born uh, mm-hmm. I was fortunate to have a great business where I had great people I worked with for 20 sure. almost 20 years that I mm-hmm. sold and you mm-hmm. know having the mm-hmm. freedom of you know going from being poor to having a little bit from selling the business and then sure. you know unfortunately going through a divorce because uh, you know I may have had too much focus on business and other things that took to a toll on that marriage.
0: How did that strain your AA program? In what ways did the divorce impact it?
1: You know, I think it it helped and hurt because one, you're kind of embarrassed by it that you're going through it with that much sobriety. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there was a lot of guys uh, that stepped up that kind of reached out to me and said, "Hey, man, you know, we've been there. We know. You know, here's some you know guidance and support, and I could bounce things off of and." You know, scary times because you just don't know what's going to happen, you know, and I was selling my business and getting divorced at the same time. So my whole life was in total transition. Mm -hmm. But the consistent thing was that I stayed involved in 12 steps and it it got me through those tough points. I had an amazing sponsor that worked with me through all that stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. You just mentioned you felt bad because a guy with all this time, you know, having to go through a divorce. Do you think that's pretty a pretty common thing for people to look at some some of their their failures while they're sober as being about their program when it's actually about something else and their program is a- actually there to help them.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's easy to fall into that trap where you think, oh man, I'm not doing a good enough program, mm-hmm. but it's actually the opposite. The program is there to support me mm-hmm. through those obstacles you know what i mean like they it's been a wonderful um support i feel for the people that actually don't have a when they go through tough times because they don't have as many opportunities to share they may have a few friends they could share with but for us it's mm-hmm. like man i could go to any place any hour and go and say, you know, or find somebody yeah. that been where I've been that I could share mm-hmm. with. So mm-hmm. I, I think it, it is more of a blessing through tough times.
0: So how many years into your sobriety uh, was it before you got married and then the divorce? Uh, I was
1: late. I enjoyed being single. <laughs>
0: I, was, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was probably, uh, shoot, it's uh, my daughter's 16 and we were married a few years before that. So 18 minus, I was probably 22 years sober when I got married the first time. Wow! Mm, and so mm. I had a good run there. <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah, I'll bet. Actually, I thought I was going to be single. In fact, I was. I had a friend that was an architect, and we designed this super cool single bachelorhood bachelor pad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did that look like? <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was awesome. And the showers and the poles in them, I mean, it had a lot of stuff. <laughs> it had a lot of fun things in it. And then I met, oh, wow. and then I met my wife, and she was amazing. She's from Louisiana, and we had a first mm-hmm. wife, and she had, we had a great experience. And then once we had kids, she changed. I felt like, and then obviously I'm building a business, so mm-hmm. uh, I would say black, and she would say white, and so it just got to the point where we just broke apart. And, and luckily, you know, today we we have struggles, but we get along great. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we all met in Colorado this summer with my kids and. My wife and her kids and we we actually went whitewater rafting. And we were all on the same boat.
0: On the same boat. How <laughs> and do you and like the guy
1: was the guide was like, "How do y'all know each other?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got a half hour. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. So, so, was she uh, was she in AA or uh, did she have any kind of twelve step program at all?
1: No, her father was in rec- uh, sober. Uh-huh. He was older, so he wasn't as involved in recovery. And then her brother right. got sober uh about the time we met so that's kind of actually how we met we met through the guy who was trying to help him uh thought we would be great together Hmm. and and that's how we met and and we had 12 plus years so uh it was a a good marriage and and just you know had some struggles at the end and and but gave me two beautiful children that i I have no regrets about
0: Mm -hmm. and how old are they now 16 and 13. 16 and 13, wow. So you're dealing with teenagers right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Have you had to deal with any uh, issues, technology, overuse, or or drugs or alcohol? Have you had to deal with those with your own kids?
1: Absolutely. Uh I've been blessed that neither one of them have gotten into drugs or alcohol, but oh, that's good. my 13 year old has bad ADHD mm-hmm. and uh, we had serious issues and he's a big kid. And uh, there was one time that he pushed his stepbrothers who's was three, four years younger. And then I pushed my son and, you know, he hit his head and CPS was mm-hmm. involved. It was tough. I, I got, oh, I was, that's a tough story, but, it, it, but the good news is he, went to a wilderness program, went to a boarding school mm-hmm. for almost a year, year and a half. He just came back about a month ago. Yeah. He's, he's doing amazing. We locked him down like he can only have an hour of technology time a day, 30 minutes at a time because it, wow. we, we can see how it affects his brain. hmm hmm All the kids in the boarding school and the wilderness programs, they're from all over the country, mm-hmm. all of them. I mean, almost mm-hmm. 100% of them, technology was one of their issues. Mm wow and so yeah it's it's a scary thing because it's so prevalent in our society and you know we had to we gave him a phone so he has a phone now but i have you know been able to put the restrictions on it and stuff like that so wow we're, we're trying to mon- monitor it was my 16 year old she goes to school she's in the band she plays on the softball team she's she has a phone but we we've had not any issues with her. She doesn't seem to like video games thankfully. Yeah. So we've not had issues with her.
0: So your second marriage, how did you find blending the families work out? It's you know, it's it was some challenges, but
1: the kids seem to get along and and that's uh-huh. been helpful and to me the challenge was more about them feeling comfortable. Mhm. You know, and how I brought my new girlfriend into the world with them Mm -hmm. and then how they felt about her. They, they had some struggles with my wife obviously Mm -hmm. at times and, but it seems like it's, it's leveled out and they're all kind of on the same page and, and trying to include each other and, you know, respectful, but, there are times that you could see where she has kids that want to migrate to her, and my kids want to migrate to me. And huh. and and she her two of her kids are younger, but they nine year old's been with me. I've known him since he was like six months old, uh-huh. and I coach his basketball and stuff like that. But you know, still that's their mom, and and he calls me dad. But if they had to make a choice, they would lean to her. Maybe he would lean to me whereas Mm -hmm. her daughter would definitely lean to her. And then my kids, I think, would obviously lean to me. So it's the the challenge of a blended family. is like how much do you force your kids onto the stepmom and the stepparent and vice versa? Mm -hmm. And so I just try to be as open-minded and, you know, roll with it as best I can. Mm
0: I was curious, and I've asked several of the guests I've had on the show this before, but in what ways has your AA program informed your role as a parent? You know, I
1: think it, one, I love that my kids have never seen me drink or drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And my daughter, she was in some, like a modeling thing or some mm-hmm. kind of thing for her school. Maybe it's, I don't know what it was, but it was something where she had to answer a question about who do you admire most? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't there because it was a mom's thing. It was a mom and daughter thing, I guess. I don't I don't remember mm-hmm. exactly what the whole scenario was, but it was something where she had to publicly say that. Mm-hmm. And she said, "I admire my dad because he helps people have needs, mm-hmm. and you know, wow. and drugs and alcohol and stuff." So it, it just it was a proud dad moment because. If she can see that I want and grateful and that I'm helping other people, that it's part Mm -hmm. of my mission, then, then I think I've done part of my job with her.
0: Wow, that's great. I didn't tell my kids much about my alcoholism until they were old enough to understand what it was about. But I think they were, you know, maybe in the 10 to 12 year old range. When did you first have those discussions with your kids? You know, I, I don't
1: think I've, I, I don't think it's ever been like a sit down discussion. I think it's mm-hmm. been more like, this is my life. Like I'm going to an A meeting, you know, like, you know, and talk a little bit about what A is. But yeah, so I think it's been kind of their whole, hopefully their whole life that they've known it. Now, my son in the family program at the wilderness mm-hmm. program, I, I was the mm-hmm. most, I was direct and honest with them about rehab, about going to jail. Mm hmm. Yeah. My biggest fear is I didn't want him to think, oh, he went to jail and, you know, I can get away with things because my dad got away with things. So I I had to be selective when I told him about that. But I think I really made an impact on him that week, that family week, because, you know, he's in a program that we're telling him, like, you're here and then you're going to probably go to a boarding school for a while, mm-hmm. but it's partly to make your life better. And so I, had to, yeah. I used it as an analogy, like, this is the things I did that. You know, change the course of my life. And we're hoping that we're doing this for you at 13 that it can change the course of your life.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. That kind of understanding, especially at that age, can make a big difference. Speaking of impact, George, so you've been in the recovery field for a long, long time and have helped countless people with the very thing that your your daughter, you know, so proud about and admires you most for when it comes to working in the recovery field, I've, I've known people who've worked as counselors and MSWs and that sort of thing who are also in the program, and some of them talk from time to time about letting up on their AA program because they're spending time around alcoholics and drug addicts all day long, every day. How did you deal with that yourself? And then how do you encourage the people who've worked for you in how to think about that?
1: I love that question. So the reason I got into it or one of the ways I was introduced to it was when I was actually in my sober living mm-hmm. and they called me in their office and said, hey, we want you to read this book on becoming a counselor. You have a way to confront people where they don't get defensive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like 19, 20, 19 years old. So I went back upstairs and told the other guys, I said, hey, they're really hard <laughs> up for help. They, want, they got to become a counselor. <laughs> you know, I'm going into business. I'm not going to deal uh, with this counseling no. yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I think, you know, they drop the seed. And I guess when God's calling you, you, you follow the call. And it's been an amazing life. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's been helpful is in my training, this company I worked for was so awesome. They were really clear about it. They said you had to learn and get training every year about it. It's called the two hat philosophy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's basically one hat that you're a professional, come to work, you help people, you're a counselor, whatever you're doing, you do that job. Mm-hmm. You don't share just your story, right? You you only share it if it's for a specific reason to help somebody. So that's one hat, right? The mm-hmm. second hat is your recovery hat. Your recovery hat is totally different. That's you in your recovery. Mm. And so for a long time, a lot of people didn't know what I did. In fact, one guy one time told me he said. Do you sell insurance? What do you do, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) We stay pretty anonymous, don't we? (laughs) Exactly. So I purposely, you know, it worked really well for a long time and then it kind of gets it got hard where the people Uh-huh. I don't ever say what program I work for or what I do. It's like other people might say it, but I try not to go to meetings to talk about what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could talk about some issues around what I'm doing, but it's very generic, it's not specific. My biggest gift to people is to, that work in the business that says you have to keep it separate or you're gonna burn out.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I did burn out for a while of not doing it right, like not mm-hmm. doing it fully. Mm-hmm. You can't tell your story so many times. You get your energy taken from you because you're giving it, and you're not getting it back by not going to meetings. We had to add, actually add the mm-hmm. in our application. By law, you could do it. No other, not many other industries could do this, but we had to add in our application about your sobriety date. because Really? Wow. We had some young uh, techs that were sober, and then they realized uh-huh. they, they could drink socially. Uh, and so they started wow. drinking, and we couldn't just fire them for drinking or right. doing being out in public drinking. And so we had to put that you have to proclaim you're in sobriety, so that if that did happen, we had rights to terminate
0: because
1: hmm. it's a very tricky s- slope. Because if you quit going to meetings, which we can't really mandate they go to meetings, but if you don't go to meetings and you relapse and you're working and you're doing your job and we don't can't tell and you know eventually we'll probably tell but mm-hmm. if we start to see signs and you know we want to pull that trigger as soon as that relapse happens and it does happen it's No one's immune because most of the people in the drug and alcohol industry that's crazy enough to work in it is people that are in in recovery.
0: Well, that's an occupational hazard, though, isn't it? Absolutely. Having to sit there all day and interface with people who aren't as well as those who are sitting in your AA meetings and aren't as honest and open and everything, and they're fighting to not get sober. Yeah. That's got to be tough.
1: Yeah, that's the message. I had one lady that, man... She said, we confronted her. I said, look, you're having issues. You have to be going to meetings or whatever. Like she said, oh, no, I I have my church. That's a lot of times when people say that. Mm -hmm. I said, you may have your church, but you need your recovery. And luckily she ended up resigning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, years later, she embezzled the drug and alcohol chapters money because she was the treasurer
0: Mm -hmm. and it ended
1: up going to jail. For that. And I think it's because I don't know what her her addiction was, but she quit going to meetings. And it's the exact purpose. Like people say, I'm always around it or I have my church or I have this. They have all these excuses. But to me, when you're in the field, you actually should go to more meetings. Yeah. And you should go to Al-Anon, too, because you're around alcoholics all day, working for them, with them and working with the patients and working around them.
0: Yeah. You're talking about two hats also, which. Yeah kind of lends itself to a follow-up question to that. How do you keep those people who have worked for you from crossing over that line of sitting in an AA meeting, seeing Joe Blow over there who really needs something more than AA? Where's that line that keeps that guy from giving Joe Blow his card and saying, call me? I mean, that's got to be a fine line to, to walk, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's an ethical. It's a very ethical line. You cannot be recruiting in meetings, and I I know it happens. I know it. You know it's unfortunate. But like, say, if I'm in a meeting and somebody after the meeting says, "Hey, I got a friend that needs rehab," and I talk to him about it, I, I'm not going to just push him in my program. I'm going to give him some options. Right. Uh, you know, that's one thing you could do. The second thing is you could say, "Hey, this is a phone number you may want to call." As you know, these people. And pass it on so you don't break that boundary. But obviously, in my situation, I get calls all the time from people in recovery that have their family members or, you know, whatever I, people I know that to help them. And, you know, I want to do my best to help them. But yeah, they, you, I hate when I see people recruiting in meetings.
0: Yeah, I've seen it happen. And uh, every now and then I'll say something to the, the person about it and say, this is really, this is not the place for you to be doing that. But there's that fine line it used to be that, people just made 12-step calls or sent the person to a sanitarium or a hospital. There's so many other things that can be done in between those extremes nowadays that that weren't available back then. So given somebody coming to you with a particular problem where they're having a hard time staying sober, maybe this question isn't exactly for you, but let's say somebody in the field, the recovery field, um, and somebody who's also very well-steeped in Alcoholics Anonymous. Someone comes to you and says, I really have this problem. Do you recommend AA first? And if that doesn't work, suggest to them that perhaps they do something a little bit more therapeutic? Or or do you just assess it on a case-by-case basis? How do you deal with that? You know, I think it's more of an assessment on a case-by-case
1: basis usually the person who's contacting me is more the family member per right. se uh-huh. or a friend if it's the person themselves then it's you know i may a first that's my first priority so right if they've been in and out of program i might say have you tried treatment have you been to outpatient have you been to inpatient what's your story uh-huh you know what do you need and and kind of go from there and then make a you know potential recommendation to them and say hey you may want to consider going, you know, do this or do that. It's just whatever I feel like collectively I could guide them to.
0: Yeah. So there, there may be those times when you're saying to the guy, listen, you really need to go to an, a bunch of AA meetings for a while and see how that works out. Yeah. And then we can talk again, that sort of approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or say, hey, who who's your sponsor? Well, I don't yeah. have a sponsor. Well, let me explain to you what a sponsor mm-hmm. can do for you to teach you to go through the 12 steps and, you know, how many meetings are you making or you know, what's going on with you. And so I, I try to do that kind of investigative work just as a, yeah. a fellow brother in recovery and say, Hey, okay, let's get some phone numbers for you to call people. Yeah. The basics. But if they're, you know, been relapsed 30 times and they, you know, can't seem to get it because of the, this issue or that issue, then I might say, Hey, you know, I've, what, what else have you, what other professional help have you sought?
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What I love most about you, George, is that you're never shy about sharing the good things that are going on in your life. And I think people need to hear about that Mm -hmm. in meetings. Uh, I love the fact that you have an attitude that when things are going well, you should be going to meetings. Because as I've I've expressed it in meetings before, you've heard me say it, it almost seems counterintuitive to say to somebody, whose life is going so well, you need to go to more AA meetings. It just, it doesn't sound right, (laughs) although it is right. I get that. But over the past several, two, three, five years, is there anything that's kind of stuck out in your mind that that you kind of stepped back, took a deep breath and said, oh, thank God I'm sober?
1: You know, when I had that situation with my son and CPS Mm. was involved, it was the weirdest thing, Howard. And, you know, I'm going to share it just because I think it's important for people to know that shit happens. But sure. So basically, CPS waived my case. They say, look, it's a one-time incident. You know, everything's great. But they also, the police oh, yeah. get involved. And so HPD calls me one day and says, hey, we need to meet with you. I say, well, CPS already cleared it. So no, it's, it's two different areas. I have to come in from a criminal standpoint. Great. Uh-huh. glad to meet with you. They scheduled an appointment at this place called the Children's Assessment Center. My wife and I show up. The police didn't show up. I don't know if I had his Mm. name wrong, Mm -hmm. the date wrong, but we were there. We gave the guy my information. Said, look, I don't want you to know I'm here. Maybe three months later, I'm leaving my house at 630 to bring my Mm -hmm. daughter to Ban. And as soon as I pull out, this cop pulls up behind me. He was waiting for me at the parking lot, put me in handcuffs. They bring me downtown. It takes 24 hours to bail me out. Hmm. So I'm in there with every thug, <laughs> every, every addict, every alcoholic. Oh, wow. they, they had a guy that they brought me to another cop car. Uh, they met right outside my house. There was like the one cop got me and then he had to put oh. me in another car. with. And this other guy was in the car. And the guy, we're almost in jail. And he says, look, I really got to go to the bathroom. And the cop says, I'm sorry, we we're almost there. And the guy, you know, pees oh, no. on himself. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. And it was like right right after my birthday and my employees had made me a birthday cake. Uh-huh. It was a Friday morning and I, oh. I couldn't even show up for work. Oh, and so it took like the whole day to check out. And so I, I don't know if that was obviously a, a, a lesson for me to experience that. But, yeah. you know, if I was any good to anybody that was there that I was able to talk to. But, man, I just tried to eat my sandwiches that they threw at you and, and do the right thing and, and to see the experience of going through that. But, you know, that was a, a, a struggle yeah. in sobriety that, you know, I wouldn't wish on anybody, but yeah. it is what it is and it happens. So we just got to move on. But
0: and an opportunity to demonstrate some humility, too. And I think I remember you talking about that in meetings and the way you handled it was instructive and informative to people who might have to go through that sort of thing uh, themselves. So we're in the age of uh, Zoom meetings. This has been a really tough time for a lot of people. The people have not been able to get to bricks and mortar meetings. There are a lot of people running around now coming up on a year sober who've never been to a live meeting. What are your thoughts about Zoom and about people getting sober online? Do you think it is going to result in fewer people going to live meetings or more people? How is AA supposed to deal with that, do you think?
1: You know, it's such a blessing that Zoom was available. I mean, I I couldn't imagine us being dark no meetings. I guess we were going have them in the yard with three or four people, you know, people surrounded and six feet apart. You know, and I think that's an option. But I think that we'll slowly get mm-hmm. back to the rooms because it's so important. And I hope that the people that have gotten sober this last year online mm-hmm. feel us enough through the Zoom that when they see us in person, in the meeting that they'll feel comfortable like they're, you know, as we're taking us in the zoom and putting us in a room and that we're physically there.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But who knows this pandemic is, we have no idea the long-term effects. I mean, on the, I worry about the yeah. kids schooling. I mean, the, The schooling as the last year has been probably suspect at best.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know, what's going to happen to those kids or, you know, the emotional stuff of these kids that haven't been able to experience just Mm -hmm. normal life. So I have no idea what's going to happen for AA long term, but I'm hoping that the ones that have really been great Mm and engaged in Zoom Mm -hmm. will feel comfortable. The ones I worry about are the ones that were in recovery that are anti-Zoom. And that when we do go back, are they gonna say, Oh, I've, I've been living my life this way. I don't wanna go back to meetings and then they relapse? Or how many of them have potentially relapsed because they had a predisposition or an attitude of yeah. contempt for Zoom? which blows me away. Like, some ways, it's easy. I like, you know, I don't have to drive anywhere. I don't have to park. I don't have to walk. I don't...
0: Well, you know, and to me, it seems like, and, and I've thought this during this this past year, is that saying that you don't want to go to a Zoom meeting because it's it's a Zoom meeting is like saying you don't want to go to a particular AA meeting because it's in a certain kind of building. I mean, it's like, it's not about the format. It's yeah. about what's going on inside.
1: Yeah, and I love that you, especially you and some of the other guys, have said, it's an, you know, it's an opportunity to go all over the world to try any kind of meetings. I, I mean, yeah. When I was chair for Tuesday noon, I was like, I want to have people yeah. I know in recovery, yeah. from all over the world, come in to lead, and it was a it was an awesome experience because if you think about it, if if you've been in recovery long enough, you'll meet people from all over, and you can't share a meeting with them necessarily unless you're visiting them, yeah. And and so with Zoom, we've been able to cross some barriers that we may not be, you know, better cross again.
0: Yeah, that's been really helpful, especially since the international convention yeah. up in Detroit was canceled. I was yeah. all signed up in the main hotel, and uh, I was really pumped up about it and when it got canceled. Oh. It was heartbreaking, but I've gotten to meet people from all over the world on Zoom, and yeah. uh, you know who knows, maybe I'll see them at the next, uh, at the next international.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, is there anything else that you'd like to just say about uh, your life in recovery before we close things down here, George?
1: No, it's like the movie. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. His name was George Bailey. (laughs) I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. It's like, you know, if I was dead, I would have had none of these opportunities to meet people like you and to have the sobriety I've had and the the gifts I've been given. So yeah, this is all like borrowed time. And yeah, you know, I need to enjoy my life and and the times I have on this earth and hopefully make a difference. And so pass the tradition on of, you know, doing what's best for recovery. Yeah.
0: Well, you've been a big gift to me over the years in AA, George, and I love you. And it's just been so marvelous to have you as a friend and a fellow traveler on this road uh, of happy destiny. Yes. I just love the fact that you've not only helped a lot of people within the program, but in general in recovery across the city for many, many years now. And I think you're a real asset to the community, but you're a good friend to so many people. I think that says a lot, so...
1: Thank you, Howard. You're the best AA greeter in the world, babe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I miss it, man. I, I bet. What's really weird is that after some of these AA meetings I go to online, especially the ones where we used to have uh, where I would greet people at the door, when I get off, when I go offline, I go and I wash my hands and it's, it's, a, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird thing. And, I, and I, I caught myself doing that the other day. I said, why am I washing my hands after an AA meeting? Well, because in my mind, I'm still greeting them. And I, I, I love, I love to do that. I love to do that.
1: You're great. My wife even said, I told her I was doing this and I said, Howard, she said, the greeter?
0: I said, yeah, the greeter. <laughs> well, I love doing it and somebody's got to do it. And I feel very blessed to be able to have the opportunity. Again, thank you for doing this today, George. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. I'm thankful you've tuned in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, as it'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me, it's howard at recoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.